Welcome to Season 5 of the Excel Still More Podcast. I'm still your host, Chris Emerson, and I'm here to encourage you in your walk with the Lord, and I'm glad you've joined. The program continues to be sponsored by Cunningham Financial Group. John is a good friend, and he's helped me and my family in everything from stock and mutual fund investing to annuities, life insurance, and retirement planning. I certainly commend him to you. If you have needs in any of those areas, you can reach him at 615-895-7773. Thank you again for your ongoing encouragement and support. Let's get started. Hey, welcome back, and thanks again for listening. I really do appreciate your kindness and your patience, especially if you are a week-in and week-out listener. I know you can't see what's happening behind this microphone, but I come into this little room and shut the door at least once every week. I've never done a transcript, and I rarely even bring notes. So I'm just sitting here sharing with you things that I'm excited about, things that I'm learning, and things that I believe can work. In some ways for me, over the last four and a half years, this is just incredibly therapeutic. I get to pitch things out loud Because I'm recording, if I say something that's totally messed up, I get to delete it and start over. And when I finally open the door and walk out of this room, I feel like I've put down ideas that matter. And then I take that bold and perhaps foolish step of sending out those ideas, submitting them to everyone to be used and weighed and even judged. So for the incredible ESM family, which constitutes around 4,000 listeners, I just want to say thanks for giving me this opportunity. Sometimes it's not just the chance to line things out in my own mind, but it's the chance to practice things before I present them in sermons. I suspect you probably know that podcasting is not my day job. For the last 22 years, I've preached an average of two sermons every single week. Sometimes they're right out of the text and the points are easily made and I teach them with no trepidation at all. Other times, I'm up here for hours just practicing out loud, saying things to see if they make sense. But occasionally, like today, I sneak off into the little room and close the door and tell myself, if I can make this make sense to you in a 23-minute window where I get the chance to edit if needed, then maybe I'll be ready to preach it live in a worship service. So just to pull back the curtain a bit, that's what's going on today. It is Saturday afternoon. It's a little over a week before this episode launches as a podcast. I'm planning to preach tomorrow on an idea that means a great deal to me. Something that I think some would say is controversial for those who are members of very conservative rule-following churches, as it tries not to take anything away from that, but asks you not to overlook the power of your spirit in the way that you worship and live. So give me another 20 minutes or so to run this by you, which I think all of it will naturally attach to where ESM is generally trying to take us. Hopefully, it will help me focus tomorrow and become something advantageous for you about a week from now. So we're in John chapter 4, where Jesus is interacting with the Samaritan woman. He's introducing great truths about eternal life to her. She gets a bit defensive, and she says something like, our people, the Samaritans, we worship over here and you Jews worship over there, as if to say that unity is impossible. And then Jesus gives a very well-known answer. In verse 23, he says, An hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, 
and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So Jesus is clearly teaching that both of those things are important. We sometimes, as I'll suggest today, have difficulty balancing the idea of your subjective spirit and God's objective truth, but Jesus clearly says the balance requires both. So you've probably heard a lot of lessons on this. I know I've taught quite a few, and there are some pretty standard traditional ideas we give to try to define what spirit is here and what truth is. And having done a little background research, I feel like we usually define this pretty well. When Jesus says true worshipers will worship in spirit, spirit is your subjective personality and heart. It's, quote, the rational spirit, the power by which the human being feels, thinks, and decides. It is your disposition, the efficient course of any power, affection, emotion, or desire. Your spirit is you. It's your heart, and your emotion. Without any question, that personal element of faith and love in you is required to be a worshiper of God. And, quick note on that, worshiper is not in any way limiting this to Sunday. Yes, that spirit must be in place when we assemble on Sundays, but we also, as we see in Romans 12, worship God with our bodies in everything we do and everywhere that we go and we must have the right spirit. Now, on the other hand, he says truth is every bit as vital, and we typically define truth as the objective reality about God and what God teaches. God is truth. Jesus is truth. His word is truth. The word here means, quote, what is true under any manner of circumstance. Truth is the commands of God, principles of God, the instructions of God. The truth is God's will. It is his authority. So I don't think we've said anything controversial at this point. Jesus is telling her that the unity of saints in his kingdom will include people who come with the right spirit and heart and also come to do the will of God. But this leads to a question I have for you that may or may not reveal a lot about you. Spirit and truth are both important, but which one is more important? If you had to have one and were devoid of the other, which do you think would better position you to see Jesus on the last day and receive his mercy? Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that's an impossible choice and I will not be baited by you, Christopher. But give me a couple of minutes to try anyway. I'll give you two examples. Example one, let's talk about collective worship. Let's say you are someone who believes that singing in worship is authorized and that the addition of the instrument in worship is unauthorized. To you, it is not the truth. If that's what you believe, this question is for you. Let's play a game of would you rather. Would you rather be found by Christ worshiping at a church that used the instrument, which you do not believe is authorized, but also for you and others was a deeply emotional and spiritual experience? Your heart was intensely in tuned to the well-selected lyrics, and the songs literally stayed with you and guided you throughout the week. Or would you rather worship at a place that got the truth part right in your view, and the musical worship was only voices, but by your own admission, it was flat, emotionless, as you sang verses you did not remember two minutes later that did not stick with you throughout the week, and in an assembly that kind of low-key had a negative disposition 
towards any kind of emotional expression. Now, again, I know the answer is neither of those are right and both need to be changed. I totally agree. But if you had to spend the rest of your life in one of those situations, working on things, which would you choose? I believe a lot of friends of mine would choose the second situation. At least we've got the authority, truth, right, and that we're doing the right thing. We can work on the heart stuff later. I'm not here to tell you that's a bad answer or a good answer or tell you what my answer would be, but I will tell you that getting comfortable with that choice and maybe even somewhat proud of it represents a grave spiritual danger. We can get to the point where we go, hey, we've got the truth thing right, we'll work on the spirit later, and then years pass and we don't prioritize attitude, emotion, and spirit. Let me give you a second example that moves into everyday living because our worship and spirit and truth is Tuesdays as well as Sundays. Here are two couples. The first couple is deeply in love. They care for one another. They are compassionate and kind. She supports him. He selflessly leads her. They have a great relationship. But, plot twist, they are living together and they're not married. The other couple, however, is lawfully married and has been married for years, but they would openly tell you that there is not much love between them. There is bitterness, scar tissue, and generally a bad relationship. In fact, they would probably tell you the main reason they're still married has nothing to do with the spirits they share and everything to do with the truth and not wanting to be lost if they divorce. So I ask you, which of those two couples is better prepared to meet Jesus? Now, I know the answer. Don't send me emails. The answer is neither of them. The Lord is demanding the right disposition in our walk and walking the right path. But if I pressed your hand to choose which of the two you think have a better chance with the Lord, I think many of us would choose the second situation. And again, I'm not here to judge that answer or tell you what mine would be, but I know why we would do that. We would say God's law is clear. The truth for everyone is plain that you must be married and can't just live together. But my concern is that we get so focused on the importance of getting the law right that we end up downplaying the importance of the spirit. And again, by spirit, it is your personal heart and emotion and love. In some ways, these are not good examples because a husband loving his wife and a wife serving her husband is a part of the truth, the law. But I think we know far too many married couples who go to church who are not exhibiting those qualities in their spirit one to another. I think that can be dangerous because they're thinking, well, at least we're married, which is the main thing. And of course, that's making a mistake Jesus is saying, don't make. True worshipers in all of the ways that they honor God, in worship, services, and in relationships, understand that the balance requires both. Now, I think even the most conservative listener would agree with me on this. I don't think I've lost anyone, but you might say that sequence is important. And here's what I mean by that. You might say, look, the spirit, the attitude, huge. But getting the law right, following the objective truth, has to come first. So you might run back through the examples and say, let's make sure we're worshiping in an authorized way collectively first and then start shaping hearts. Or let's make sure they are legally married in a way that God honors and then let's take them to counseling. 
I can understand that, and I think I probably can even get on board with it, but I'm not sure that Jesus would agree with it. I'm not sure the teachings of Jesus are these. Get the facts right, and then build the right heart around it. I mean, look, anecdotally, in our passage in John 4, he puts spirit first. He says spirit and truth, and then he doesn't double down by saying God is truth. He says God is spirit, therefore worship him in spirit and truth. Please note, I'm not saying spirit is more important, but I'll tell you this, as human beings, we are not great at balancing things. We're not great at taking two things that are very different, like these two things, which are sometimes set in opposition to each other, and balancing them with equal weight. But that is exactly what Jesus is challenging them to do. Now, if you were going to kind of push back on me a little bit, you would probably use a good Old Testament story which seemed to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that unless you follow the law correctly, nothing else matters. And I was reading one of those stories recently. In fact, it's the whole reason for this podcast and sermon. I was in 2 Samuel 6, where David had overtaken Jerusalem and wanted to move the Ark of the Covenant there, and he placed it on a new cart. Of course, God had said the way it must be transported and who was able to touch it, the Kohathites, but they weren't there. And so as the cart began to waver, a man named Uzzah reached up and touched it, and God became angry, and he died. David went through emotions like anger and fear, and for three months, they didn't move the thing at all. Now, per the point that many would make, in the Chronicles account, it talks about how he went back to what the Scripture said, set things up God's way, and he moved the cart, and everything went well. Careful readers will note that the first time around, David was excited He was emotional, he was celebrating and dancing, but he didn't do it right, and so God didn't accept it. But I think you also should know that in 2 Samuel 6, not much is mentioned about the authority stuff, not much is mentioned about the Levites or the cart. It just says he goes at it again, and this time he celebrates the same way. He's dancing and singing and celebrating while also showing great reverence to God offering animals every six steps the Levites took. So it's certainly not a text that says the spirit didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was the truth. I would explain it more this way. David had a full heart of love for the Lord, a celebratory spirit at the beginning, and it was good. And he made a mistake, and he didn't do it God's way, but he fixed that, and he kept that emotion. He celebrated just as much later as he did at the beginning. In fact, it's interesting, in 2 Samuel 6, there's nothing mentioned about the Levites, but we do see his wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, calling out David for his celebration and telling him he's making a fool out of himself, and his answer is kind of like, look, you ain't seen nothing yet. I don't know that he had a book, chapter, and verse for the kind of dancing that he did or the way that he celebrated, but I know that it accompanied all of the things he was doing here in a relationship with the Lord. It's interesting, her effort to squelch that spirit ruined their relationship, and she had no future children. So what I'm saying is, that is a great story about Bible authority and doing it God's way, but the answer is both. We should be striving to grow in each of these things, and I'm not even buying the sequence argument. I mean, to take this to the New Testament, do you remember the 3,000 people who were baptized on Pentecost? It didn't start with an appeal to the things they needed to do. In fact, Peter in the sermon didn't even tell them what to do. He appealed to their spirits, to their subjective ability to reason and feel, and he told them the story of Jesus and what they had done to him. They started with the right spirit. 
Then, having their hearts pierced, they said, what shall we do? And he introduced the objective obedience that was needed to repent of your sins and be baptized for the remission of those sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so they obeyed the truth, and then they went on sacrificially with tremendous spirits of fellowship, worshiping together in the temple where the scrolls were, and eating together daily in homes where the ovens were. Look, let me be clear on this. If I was speaking to an audience that was charismatic, that was all about heart and feel and sensation and was not concerned with the truth, I would give the same lesson but I would warn them about making different choices in elevating the spiritual experience above the objective truth of God's authority. But I think it's safe to say that the listeners today and tomorrow morning, if they fit in any one category over the other, fit in the category of law and truth and obedience being principal and maybe even most important. I just don't think that's the way the New Testament plays out, and it's probably because the audience Jesus was dealing with and the audience that continued to persist in the first century church tended to lean more on the law than they did the heart behind that law. Would you agree with that statement? Getting things right was more important than why you got them right or who you were seeking to help in obeying them. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 23 what Jesus said to the Pharisees? He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So in that text, it's clear that obeying the law of Moses was still important. Please don't quote me as saying otherwise. But he said the weightier matters concern what is just and what is merciful, and what comes from a heart of trust. Can we ever obey the law well enough to cover for a hard heart or selfless purposes? Jesus is saying no, and certainly he still wants us to do the objective things that he tells us, but have you noticed how much of his teaching is about renovating you from the inside? It's about humility and kindness and the right spirit. In that way, in the sense that the truth is that we need renovated spirits, That intersects in Jesus' teaching often. Apparently, this became an issue for the first century church. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? It's not just a chapter on the right spirit of love. It begins in this way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. That text pictures a very obedient Christian doing the things God said to do. He's not saying they don't matter. He's saying, I want you to measure your spirit. Remember our definition of spirit, that rational part of a human being that feels thinks, and decides, this disposition that has power, affection, and emotion. I'm not saying spirit is more important than truth, but the New Testament goes out of its way to say, don't present to me obedience without a heart that loves me and loves others. I'm just about out of time, but I'm reminded of the Ephesians church in Revelation chapter 2. They were doctrinally 
strong. We would call him a very sound church, but he said, you've lost your first love. Jesus doesn't follow like some would think that he would by saying, look, that's not a huge deal. As long as you stand rightly on the issues, some lost affection for your brother or evangelistic spirit for the lost is not as big a deal. You can work on that later. Jesus did not afford that choice. He said, I want you to repent and fix that because it matters. So I feel like I've been going at warp speed here, and I apologize for that, though I know a lot of people listen at like two times speed anyway. But without doing any review or anything, let me finish by giving you a few thoughts. Thought one, consider your spirit. It matters. Your emotions in worship, your affection for others, Jesus is reading that all the time, and that's where he wants to begin making lasting changes in your life. Second thing, be careful how you judge the emotions of others. Your spirit, your emotions are personal, and in that way, subjective. I think, on the other hand, truth is far more objective. Take a harder line on what you believe God is saying to do or not to do, especially when the Bible says it plainly on the page. Just remember to cite David's story that some people celebrate outwardly and some people don't, and that's fine, but Michael was out of line when she condemned David for the way that he chose to celebrate his relationship with God. And then one last thing, let's not act like we've got 100% of the truth all locked down and now we're just working on the spirit. I know you don't believe your works are perfect. I know you don't believe that you know everything. What you believe to be the truth might be different five years from now after reading through the Bible more often. But I tell you what you can have during that entire process. You can have a spirit of faith, of humility, and love. I'm not saying it will be perfect, but there are senses in which you can reach nearly full saturation of trusting God, even though your understanding of truth has a long way to go. Never forsake that truth. God's word and authority matters. But please be just as sure to put equal and intense focus on your spirit, your heart, your love for God, and your kindness in relationships because the one whom God seeks to be his worshipers will worship him in both spirit and truth. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed this program, will you share it with someone you care about? One thing I've learned over these five seasons is that there's nothing as powerful in advertising as word of mouth sharing between friends. Speaking of friends, let me once again commend you to give John Cunningham a call. He and his team have a wide variety of tools to help you use your present budget and life to build towards a more secure and hopeful financial future. Once again, you can reach him at 615-895-7773. And always remember, whatever you choose to do today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, excel still more.